welcome back. Thanks for joining us today at the narratives where we look at the mental health implications of the lives and lived experiences associated with being a woman in the Indian cultural context. I'm Shweta and with me I have Preeti and we're delighted to be hosting you at the narratives today. Every month at the narratives we pick up a different theme to dive into and this April we've been talking about the mental health adversities in marriage. In today's episode we discuss marital and spousal abuse. Okay so spousal abuse also referred to as domestic violence or intimate partner violence is a behavioral cycle that involves emotional physical or sexual violence inflicted on an individual in a domestic context such as cohabitation or marriage according to the protection of women from domestic violence act or pwdva 2005 of the indian constitution domestic violence is defined as any act or conduct that constitutes harassment harms injuries or threats to an aggrieved person or behaviors that are likely to result in physical sexual economic emotional verbal or psychological abuse both the actual abuse and or the threat of abuse are considered violence in this context Okay so now that we have the technical definition of domestic violence or spousal abuse out of the way I think we can jump into why it's so important and why we're talking about it today So domestic violence against women by their intimate partners is a very serious human rights violation and even a public health concern In fact it's recognized as a global hidden epidemic by the World Health Organization Domestic violence occurs in all countries across the world irrespective of social, cultural and religious identities and economic backgrounds. It's reported that approximately 35% of women worldwide experience domestic violence in their lifetime and that is a huge percentage. However, the proportion of women being exposed to physical or sexual violence varies from 15% in Japan to 71% in Ethiopia. as per a world health organization multi country study and i think that sets the ground for why we're talking about domestic violence today right yeah exactly now now that we know how prevalent it is let's just take a minute to talk about how like how it impacts an individual right or basically the consequences of uh, uh, spousal violence and intimate partner violence or domestic violence so the adverse health consequences that women experience due to domestic interpa- intimate partner violence are in fact like very wide ranging and it encompasses physical repro- reproductive and sexual and mental health outcomes right so let's just take an example the lifetime risk of severe injury as a result of domestic violence has in fact been estimated to be 9% for women with a lifetime risk of up to 22% for any type of injury from domestic violence A study conducted by Chaudhary and Patel from the organization Sangat also has some pretty telling findings in this regard. The study was conducted on a population-based cohort study of women living in the catchment area of a primary healthcare center in North Goa, and this cross-sectional data showed an association between violence and a range of self-reported gynecological complaints, low bo- body mass index or BMI, depressive disorder, and even attempted suicide. so i think that really uh, throws a lot of light into why it's important to talk about this right first of all the prevalence rates are pretty alarming and on top of that just understanding the impact that it can have 
in itself is just indicates how important it is to talk about this topic absolutely and despite all of that i mean despite you know this impact that it has on women her family and even on society at large what is truly unfortunate is that domestic violence continues to be a crime of silence largely because of the importance attached to the sanctity of the family in a t- 2007 study of 9938 women by jayaseelan and colleagues 58% of women reported that such types of domestic violence are part and parcel of married life and 16% fear that reporting the violence would hurt their family prestige or would result in a loss of respect for the family now combine this with years of exposure to domestic violence along with the cultural demands that we place on women to be subservient and accepting of their husbands and this is what you get a very serious and silent epidemic of domestic violence and that's what we're faced with today as a society okay now so this very brief discussion makes one thing clear about spousal abuse right it is a multidimensional issue to actually understand and tackle this multidimensional issue one actually needs to look beyond domestic violence as merely a law and order concern right we need to look at it also from the perspective of a cultural social attitudinal economic and all of these concerns together and various other dimensions as well when it comes to conversations around spousal abuse and domestic violence and we need to use this information or all of these perspectives to actually understand how women's mental health is impacted so only by developing this very very comprehensive perception of spousal abuse will we actually be able to address it in all its complexity and to help us unpack this complex issue of spousal abuse today we are joined by a very esteemed guest miss ashwini miss ashwini nv is the founder director of mukta foundation which is an organization committed to preventing interpersonal violence and promoting mental health she is a counseling psychologist with practice and research interests in the area of intervention and prevention of interpersonal violence such as intimate partner violence child abuse bullying and others She was earlier a faculty member in the postgraduate department of psychological counseling and psychology at Montfort College and in Jain University Bengaluru. She was recognized as one of the 100 leaders under 30 from across the globe for her idea titled Focus Formula to foster mental health in low and middle income countries at the same Gallen Symposium in Switzerland in May 2015. Mukta Foundation was also appreciated by Kailash Satyarthi the Nobel Peace Prize winner for its collaboration with young indians of confederation of indian industries for the project masoom which was a nationwide initiative to prevent child sexual abuse in september 2017 miss ashwini is also the recipient of rotary bangalore's vocational service award 2018-19 for her work in the area of training and promotion of mental health In the year 2019 she also directed a campaign titled child safety national priority where she traveled non-stop for over 90 days from january 1st to april 1st in 2019 to all the 29 states and three union territories to conduct over 150 training sessions on the prevention of child sexual abuse thereby becoming the first person to have done this consecutively in the country She has in the past led an emotional distress helpline due to COVID crisis launched by the Mukta Foundation. 
We're truly honored to be joined by you today, ma'am. First of all, Shweta and Preeti, congratulations on this wonderful initiative and a much-needed one, a podcast focusing on maternal and women's mental health is not something very common and uh, the focus with which both of you are pursuing this initiative, it's really praiseworthy. Now, thanks for inviting me for uh, this particular uh, podcast, which is focusing on spousal violence. I think something that I'd like to open this discussion with is first to understand what are the key characteristics of spousal abuse and what are some of the forms that it takes. Now, to begin with, we need to differentiate between spousal conflict and spousal violence. Now, spousal conflict, it's pretty common. You know, there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be sometimes quarrels between couples. But when it comes to spousal violence, there are two characteristic features that we need to keep in mind. And that's exactly what differentiates between spousal conflict and spousal violence. And they are, first one, the need to dominate. When it comes to spousal violence, there is an urge to dominate the other partner. Now, when I say dominate, it's not just in terms of expressing power or exerting power. It's also in terms of wanting to harm or hurt the other person. So, as I said, there are two features. One is the need to dominate and the objective of that domination, you know, is to hurt or harm the spouse it could be physically it could be sexually it could be emotionally financially so these are the two characteristic features of spousal violence one the need to dominate the second one the need to hurt or harm the spouse now when it comes to the different forms of spousal violence it can be broadly classified into six the first one physical violence the second one sexual violence the third one verbal violence the fourth one maybe emotional violence the fifth one could be financial violence and the last one is technological violence that i wish to talk to you all about now all these six forms of spousal violence would overlap with each other but for the sake of uh, you know talking about each one of this uh, as a category, I'm going to take up certain examples and speak. But all the while, we need to remember that all of these six forms of violence do overlap with each other. Let's take up the first one, physical violence. Now, more often than not, when I say uh, spousal violence, which is uh, physical in nature, the images that come to uh, one's mind is you know beating hitting the spouse slapping pulling pushing burning all of this definitely is physical violence but we need to also pay attention to certain not so often spoken forms of physical violence for instance neglecting the medical needs of a spouse not paying uh, the attention regarding the spouse's health for instance, during COVID, I've come across a couple of cases where when the husband, you know, fell sick, he was given immediate medical attention. Whereas when the wife had certain comorbid conditions and she contracted, you know, the infection, there was hardly any medical attention paid. Now, 
we need to be talking about these forms of abuse also as physical violence no because when the health of a person is neglected in a relationship and that's also physical violence so the other examples of physical violence uh, can also be uh, for instance uh, you know damaging the physical uh, the properties of uh, you know the spouse usually you know we look at physical violence as a body you know bodily related that's the usual focus but of late i have come across certain research articles where they are also talking about damaging the physical properties of uh, you know the materials that uh, the spouse possesses that too needs to be uh, taken into consideration for instance taking you know mobile phone and hitting and throwing at uh, you know the spouse one they're damaging a material owned by the spouse and secondly when that is directed towards you know a person that can also be an example of physical violence so i'm encouraging the listeners to look at physical violence as something that's beyond hitting and slapping it could also be in terms of not paying the medical attention and secondly at times it can also be forcing a spouse to consume you know let's say alcohol or drugs against his or her will to say that you know we belong to this particular strata of the society and you must consume alcohol that's also an example of physical violence so let's broaden our perspective on physical violence let me quickly move on to sexual violence now when i'm talking about sexual violence it's important that we categorize it into contact forms of sexual violence and non contact forms of sexual violence now when i say contact forms of sexual violence marital rape now that's an example of contact based sexual violence meaning there is touch involved but there are also non contact forms of sexual violence for instance forcing a spouse to watch porn and the person is not willing to watch porn secondly it can also be promising that you know i'm going to use a particular form of contraceptive but then not using it you know it's also called stealthing stealthing is removing condom promising that it shall be used but during the sexual intimate you know the process removing it you see all of these forms of sexual violence need to be discussed and we need to empower the community to voice you know voice against these forms as well or sometimes you know talking to a spouse in a sexually explicit and exploitative manner and when the other spouse is uh, not liking that process so this is also a verbal form of sexual violence right so therefore when we are talking about sexual violence we need to talk about both contact and non contact form now quickly let's go to the verbal forms of uh, the violence usually we look at verbal violence as uh, you know scolding labeling you know screaming yelling all of this certainly is verbal violence verbal form of uh, the spousal violence but sometimes you know we forget certain other aspects for instance not giving an opportunity for the spouse to speak that's also verbal violence you know sometimes uh, when in counseling sessions a spouse might say but i have not scolded her 
you've not scolded her but you've not given her an opportunity to speak that is also a form of verbal violence or another example could be denying anything and everything that spouse says i'll give you an example let's say i say i have a headache and the spouse says no 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 you don't look like you have a headache seems as if it's not violence but then denying anything and everything the spouse says can also amount to verbal violence you know what else is verbal violence and we usually don't talk about it lying by omission and lying by commission what does this mean lying by omission means not telling the you know uh, say it's not it's not about not telling the truth it's about just hiding the truth but that's also verbal abuse no i hope uh, this example is clear look at this lying by omission lying by commission lying by omission means the truth is not said lying by commission means a lie is spoken a lie is told even this is verbal abuse another neglected form of uh, verbal abuse is uh, look at this chronic forgetting what does chronic forgetting means imagine i have talked to my spouse about a particular matter for about 2 hours yesterday now if my spouse had told me look i'm not interested in listening to you that's fine it's understandable there might be certain reasons why uh, you know my spouse said i'm not able to listen to you but then imagine a situation where the spouse said okay talk to me and i spent 2 hours talking about it and the other person said yes i understand and so on and today i'm referring to that conversation and my spouse says i have no idea that you have uh, talked to me about it now once it happens understandable we are human beings we may forget but then chronically forgetting anything that the spouse is saying also amounts to verbal abuse why because you're taking for granted the words the efforts the time of the spouse imagine if there is really forgetfulness that should be applicable to all aspects no even the conversation with the colleagues the person must forget even the conversation with the parents the the spouse must forget but here the person only seems to forget the spouse's words this too would amount to verbal abuse let's pay attention to all these neglected forms of abuse so so far i've spoken about physical abuse sexual abuse verbal abuse now let me talk about emotional abuse now <clears throat> where there is any form of abuse emotional abuse is definitely there but only looking at emotional abuse also we get so many examples for instance what is today known as gaslighting right what is gaslighting to tell that one thing to the spouse clearly knowing that that's going to bring down the self esteem of the spouse to tell that mm, okay you seem to be getting ready but i don't think you know the way you're planning you're turning out to be like that something on those lines you know to tell one thing clearly having an understanding that that's going to bring down the self esteem 
of the spouse and that's going to breed self-doubt now this is emotional abuse emotional abuse can also be guilt tripping people guilt tripping what does guilt tripping means you know let's say today uh, one of the spouse you know has a uh, uh, headache to say that you know oh this headache didn't start today it started the day i married you now you see constantly guilt tripping the spouse there is nothing that's happened today but then raking up the past over and over again and guilt tripping may also amount to emotional uh, the abuse and i'll also talk about one more example and then i'll move on to the other two forms this is called rationalization this is something that i've heard in one of the sessions that i was having you know what's rationalization to give abusive behavior a spin meaning the spouse who is being abusive acknowledges that yes i am being abusive but then they are giving a spin to the intention meaning when i heard this for the first time i was like this too can happen you know what this person told he's telling that you know why i hit her as like why do you hit her and then he's telling i hit her so that she stops loving me and by chance i die i want her to move on therefore i am hitting her can you believe this particular spin on the reason for being abusive this is at times i have seen parents telling you know i hit my child so that my child learns about what pain is and they can be independent and resilient now there are hundreds of other ways to make a child independent to make a child resilient similarly in this example a spouse telling that i hit her so that she can be resilient it's clearly a contrived motive no it definitely is not the motive with which this person is hitting here the intent is to harm the intent is to dominate but look at the emotional abuse that the person uh, is you know the sharing so in the example that i was talking about there is clearly a contrived motive right you know there is rationalization here is a person who is giving a spin to the motive the motive is definitely to dominate and to bring down the self esteem of the spouse but then simply there is an attempt to say that i hit you because you can become resilient now all these examples are all forms of emotional abuse now let me quickly move on to financial abuse now as the word indicates financial abuse refers to something to do with the monetary the economic you know related abuse for example a lady could be uh, earning the money not having access to the money that she is earning that in itself could amount to spousal abuse say for example a person earns but then the spouse does not allow uh, her to use the money that is an example of financial abuse the other example of financial abuse can also be uh, not allowing a woman to earn not allowing a woman to pursue a career through which earning occurs or another example could be to say that okay you go and earn but then impeding the work imagine if i am a lecturer you know if i am a lecturer and i work in a you know a college 
If the spouse keeps on calling 100 times while I am taking classes and because there are going to be like 20 missed calls, if I leave, obviously my students are going to suffer, obviously I am going to get a negative feedback and because of that, you know, my feedback, you know, my appraisals are going to suffer and for all you know, I may lose the job. Here there is no directly saying don't go to work, but then impeding the work when I am pursuing it, that can also be considered financial abuse. So these are the five forms of uh, spousal abuse. Now let me move on to the last one, which is the technological abuse. What does technological abuse mean? Technological abuse means to use any technological platform, be it social media, be it any other technological medium to be abusive. For instance, at times uh, one has noticed, you know, we can notice sexual forms of abuse that's carried out using technological means. Verbal, emotional, financial abuse can occur using technological means. But something to remember is, I'm sure all of you remember the three words that we used to describe God. And I'll tell you why am I using uh, this particular example. What are the three words? We say God is omnipresent. That means the God is everywhere. Omnipotent. That means God is all powerful. And omniscient. Meaning God knows everything. Now listen to this. There's an understanding that sometimes those engaging in spousal abuse use technology to abuse in order to create a scene, create an image that they are omnipresent, omniscient and omnipotent. Imagine a husband tells uh, a wife, you know what, I have installed one app in your mobile, wherever you go, I will know. Might have installed, might not have installed, but just an expression that I have installed creates an illusion in the mind of the, the wife that are whatever I do, he might know. You see what's happening? So many abusers use technology as a platform to abuse in order to come across as being even more powerful, even more dominant and creating a fear in the mind of the other spouse that look, I am omnipresent, omnipotent and omniscient. So it's very important that we take into consideration all the six forms of abuse when we are talking about spousal abuse. Yes, ma'am. I think that really set the ground for us to talk further about uh, what all of these different forms of abuse that you just mentioned can actually do to somebody who um, is subjected to it. So along those lines, can you tell us a little bit about what the impacts of spousal abuse are on the mental health of the victim? or rather the survivors now given the very nature of abuse and violence it's violating the boundaries it's violating you know the personal rights of a human being the mental health is likely to suffer you know like you asked there are short-term negative impact and also the long-term negative impact of uh, the spousal violence now what I would like to do is, maybe I'll talk to you all about diagnosable disorders, but it's equally important that we look into the emotional disturbances that occur, which 
over a period of time the cumulative experience could be in the form of a mental health disorder which is diagnosable yeah so to begin with let's take up depression very very commonly seen among survivors of a spousal abuse now we will use you know uh, beck's cognitive triad because i feel it best captures in essence what survivors of spousal abuse go through now you might have heard of beck's triad which speaks about how when an individual is experiencing depression or rather when an individual is experiencing worthlessness hopelessness and helplessness that that manifests as depression in an individual now usually what happens among survivors of spousal violence when it is occurring continuously over a period of time is they begin to believe that things won't change things won't change the moment they believe that things will not change for better that's an expression of a hopeless feeling right and then there is helplessness the moment the survivor of spousal abuse believe that i cannot help myself get out of the situation and at the same time nobody around me is capable of helping me now that's helplessness and then worthlessness now earlier when i was talking about the various forms of spousal abuse i was mentioning about how one of the goals of violence is to bring down the self esteem of the spouse now when self esteem suffers the spouse ends up feeling that you know i'm worthless if i was worthy why would my you know partner abuse me why would my partner violate my rights maybe my life is not worthy or i am not worthy and therefore you know this is my experience so you see the moment these three mindsets emerge it's likely that it's going to lead to depression and this is something that time and again we see with survivors of spousal abuse or any form of violence and in this context spousal abuse so depression is extremely common and then of course we have ptsd post traumatic stress disorder you know it's so traumatic the uncertainty of what's going to happen to a person the next moment today am i going to be hit today what is the blame that's going to come on me and then you know my partner is going to use that as an advantage to torture me that in itself would give rise to uh, you know a traumatic experience and more often than not we do see that ptsd is one of the most common mental health concerns that we see among uh you know women survivors of uh, the spousal uh, the violence now another the condition that i have seen more often than not is anxiety anxiety disorders themselves are so common you know but generally talking about anxiety what's anxiety you know the way i understand anxiety is diffused fear imagine what is fear fear is okay i know what i'm afraid of but then when it comes to anxiety right i'm unable to pinpoint and say this is what i'm afraid of instead there is this overwhelming you know the sense of i'm afraid but then 
I don't know what I'm afraid of. Or there are so many things to be scared of that everything seems to bother me all at once. So anxiety is so, so common. Imagine here is an individual who is a survivor of spousal abuse, has no idea what's running in the mind of the perpetrator. And when we don't have an idea of what's running in the mind of the perpetrator, why is he or she coming and hitting me? Why is he or she coming and sexually torturing me? The uncertainty itself creates diffused fear. No, when I say diffused fear, I'm afraid, but I'm not able to clearly conceptualize in my own mind and express what is causing fear in me. Now, this leads to feelings of anxiety and it's very very common among survivors of uh, the spousal uh, the violence now let's also talk about fear you know when i'm talking about fear among survivors right it could be playing out at various levels sometimes there could be fear of losing life you know it's fear of what if i die getting stuck in this matrix of violence. Sometimes there could also be fear of, you know, bodily damage. I may not die, but what if something happens to my bodily autonomy? What if I lose my ability to walk because he keeps telling that I'll break your leg? And what if he truly does it? So sometimes it could be fear of death. Sometimes it could be fear of damaging one's, uh, you know, the bodily the healthy condition sometimes there could also be fear of losing autonomy losing freedom sometimes it could also be fear of uh, getting separated from children so many times you know i've come across individuals uh, being threatened you know the way i'll punish you is i'll separate you and your children now you see so sometimes spousal abuse might extend further to threats that I'll separate you from children. Or sometimes, you know, there could also be a fear of what am I becoming? Who am I? If I'm allowing this to happen to me, then who am I? Is there really something called I? If there was that individuality, why am I not in a position to stop this? Now, all of these could be fears. And when there is fear, right, you never know the shape and form it takes and which shape and form symptomatically emerges and then what is that mental health uh, the condition going to turn out to be but then i see you know fear and anxiety and then the cognitive triad that i spoke of the combination right you never know depending on what other social circumstances the environmental the pressures that are there the mental health does get affected and also not to forget um, you know how our mind plays on the bodily health right i met so many women you know i'm focusing on women here and of course this does not mean men don't experience spousal abuse but the focus being on women i'm emphasizing on this i have met several women experiencing spousal uh, the violence whose gynecological health is severely affected severely affected you know women who've um, developed irregular menstrual cycles only after the spousal 
violence began so all of these are indications that the psychosomatic unity it's real and when the mental health is getting affected the body too suffers and when the body suffers that in turn leads to for example let's say hormonal changes and that in turn has an impact on the mental health so it's that body and the mind the unity is so strong that one gets affected the other feels the pain and the other gets affected and vice versa so we need to also be talking about the somatic health and how that in turn affects you know the mental health and i feel these are some of the most common forms of the mental health concerns that have come across and also not to forget you know grief now when i say grief for many women or men experiencing spousal uh, abuse i want to emphasize on one type of grief called disenfranchised grief what is this disenfranchised grief you know disenfranchised grief means the world does not even think this is an issue that one must be grieving for you know for instance a woman who is grieving for the loss of her freedom because of the spousal violence is said come on you know this happens why are you breaking your head over it you see this then becomes disenfranchised grief at least if there is an opportunity to grieve maybe the possibility of healing is much higher but disenfranchised grief is the world does not even think it is an issue that one must be grieving for you know you, you are not even considered you know important that you need to be grieving for that whatever be the 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 rationale for why people say don't grieve but you lose your right to grieve and when an individual loses the right to grieve right it becomes disenfranchised grief and most disenfranchised grief leads to even more severe mental health concerns so i feel all of this we really must be keeping in mind when we are uh, you know looking at providing mental health care and support for survivors of spousal violence okay i think that really clarified just how deep the impact of spousal violence actually is and uh, like you mentioned right spousal violence is not just the uh physical domestic abuse that we generally tend to think of when we say spousal abuse but all of these different types of abuse can still have such deep and long lasting impact so thank you so much for uh, bringing that up uh, but uh, taking forward from something that you just mentioned about how society generally perceives women in the role of victims and men in the role of perpetrators I want to understand a little about how the reactions of male and female survivors of spousal abuse differs. See a lot of times what I have seen is given the society perceives that women are usually the survivors and men are usually the perpetrators many a times at least women right now have opportunities they have forums wherein they can reach out and speak about what they are experiencing but when it comes to men a lot of times i see it begins with denial and when they make up their mind and acknowledge that yes in fact i am a survivor of spousal violence sometimes to even reach out and seek help 
there aren't many forums so therefore what i'm trying to say here is at least we've arrived at that time in history where women are acknowledging that there is violence that they are experiencing and they are talking about it but then historically if you see there isn't much talk about men experiencing spousal violence but then there is enough and more research studies which are confirming that that too is a reality but then speaking about it still seems like uh you know not that that common so usually i see a lot of denial among men but when they do acknowledge that they are experiencing spousal violence figuring out who can i go and share this about that that seems to be one of the predominant concerns um uh, ma'am so something else also that i'd like to understand is when it comes to help seeking behaviors uh are there any difference in the differences in the help seeking behaviors and the responses to treatment when it comes to male and female survivors of spousal abuse i would like to answer this using two concepts you know sometimes what i have noticed is women don't seek help mainly because the society normalizes it when i say normalization you know an assumption that chalta hai you know this is how the world is so if there is one major impediment for women from seeking help is the normalization that occurs but when it comes to men one of the major impediments for men to seek you know the help is trivialization you know the number of times i have seen family members you know friends trivialize it. you know can you believe ma'am he is allowing her to dominate can you believe it's it somehow becomes a joke so when it comes to women the major impediment is normalization normalization that this is how the world is but when it comes to men seeking help becomes difficult because the larger society seems to trivialize it so i think we need to really be challenging you know the normalization that occurs when it comes to women experiencing spousal violence and trivialization when it comes to men experiencing spousal violence okay and uh, i mean speaking of the society that we live in uh another phenomenon i think that we need to talk about when it comes to uh, spousal abuse and the experiences of survivors is the role that extended families play in a collectivistic society such as india so given the typical family structures that we have where extended families and distant relatives play a very you know important role what uh, can you tell us a little about what what role they play in the ongoing spousal abuse and domestic violence like you rightly pointed out india is a collectivistic nation you know most families live together so let's consider uh, two terms here one is families of origin and then even though this is not a term that i prefer to use but then in literature you read a lot about families of procreation you know families of origin means the family that we were born to and then family of procreation is let's say you know if i get married that family becomes the family of procreation which we will call it marital home yeah so now when we are looking at extended families now the extended families need to be understood both in terms of 
families of origin and the family of procreation or the marital home from the women's perspective why because look at this in india like in the rest of the world it is a patri local structure is still prevalent what does patri locality mean patriarchy we know you know but what is patri locality patri locality means once a woman gets married she moves to the husband's house and lives there that is patri locality now i want you to understand a man has a decided advantage because he is born there he is lived there and even after marriage he is going to continue to live there but when it comes to a woman she is born in a particular family she is raised there and after marriage she is moving her location close by to the husband side of the family or directly to the husband side of the family so there is definitely a disadvantage because that's not her familiar terrain say i mean i'm just using this metaphor sometimes they say you know cricketers play very very well on their home terrain now if that's the case imagine what's happening to women they are moving from one location of familiarity to another location patri locality now imagine this woman is experiencing domestic violence or spousal violence there is two possible roles that this extended family can uh, have you know two roles they can play at the marital home one they could either be witnesses or they may also be perpetrators sometimes when they are not perpetrators but they are witnesses to the spousal violence meaning their son is abusing let's say there are in-laws there and then the son is abusing the daughter-in-law what type of witnesses can they be they can be active supportive witnesses meaning they can tell the son stop it you cannot be abusing your wife and we will not let that happen if that is what is the case what are they active supportive witnesses yeah and sometimes they can also be passive witnesses passive witnesses means they are not supporting the son who is being abusive towards his wife but they are just being neutral they are just being passive sometimes what can they do the witnesses may also join the side of the son then they are ceasing to be witnesses instead they too are becoming perpetrators for instance my doctoral thesis is on uh, women who burn themselves this is called self immolation self immolation is women are burning themselves in order to escape mostly domestic violence but what is equally common is also homicidal burns what does homicidal burns mean usually the husband the husband side of the family are pouring kerosene and then burning the women alive we might think that are this may not be common now we just need to come to you know some of the hospitals at bangalore and see how common homicidal burns are suicidal burns are what i'm trying to say here is like you said what's the role of the extended family when spousal abuse is happening they can be witnesses two possibilities active supportive witnesses if that's the case they are going to 
prevent spousal abuse at least they are going to contribute in reduction of the intensity of the violence maybe or sometimes they can also be passive passive is neither they are contributing to stop it nor are they encouraging to increase violence but the worst of situation is when these witnesses of spousal abuse join the perpetrator and when they join the perpetrator then uh, the perpetrator becomes stronger and the violence is going to get multiplied in the example that i gave so many times women have told me my husband was hitting me and my in-laws instead of asking him to stop further said she deserves it we wanted to hit her but you hit her and together there have been instances where they have burnt the women alive so extended families definitely have an immense role to play yeah and now let's come to the families of origin what is this families of origin now the daughter is in the marital home but here is the family that has given her the birth they have raised this woman they too can be how they could be witness witnesses or sometimes indirectly they are also joining the side of the perpetrator how if the witnesses are not actively supporting the victim their passivity in itself will strengthen the perpetrator their passivity in itself can strengthen and give more power to the violence the violent behavior of the spouse so even the families of origin when i say the families of origin the father the mother the siblings their passivity also encourages spousal abuse it encourages perpetrator so i really think given the collectivistic nature of the society in itself we have to take into consideration what are the attitudes of these members in the extended family are they active supportive witnesses when i say active supporter from the perspective of the survivor are they actively supporting her or are they passively standing or is that passivity in itself encouraging the perpetrator sometimes they are actively supporting the perpetrator so we really need to consideration uh, we need to take into consideration all these dimensions okay and uh, i think that really really you know told us how uh, important the role of the extended family is in uh, perpetuating cycles of violence when it comes to spousal abuse but so at the narratives the intersectional approach is something that we try to take whenever we look at any phenomena so uh, i also wanted to ask you if these familial reactions and responses to spousal abuse that we were just talking about if they vary by socio demographic factors such as socio economic class and the urban or rural region caste and other such factors you know this is a complex question and therefore certainly merit you know a lot of dialogue on these other ecological you know the factors but something that's on the top of my mind is you know sometimes than socio economic caste or the urban the rural setting what i've seen playing out you know a very important role in terms of who will support the survivor will the family support the survivor or will they remain passive 
actually depends a lot on the extent of information the extent of the awareness that they have on the very phenomenon itself for instance for instance i have seen nothing to do with the urban the rural setting sometimes people in the urban setting when they don't know the procedures to go and file a complaint the families will say are we don't know what to do and when they don't know what to do sometimes they just remain passive the moment there is an awareness on okay these are the three institutions organizations that we can reach out to and this is the procedure to go and file a complaint sometimes that awareness right not nothing to do with the urban the rural but that awareness is what's going to differentiate how the responses are going to be so than socio economic i would say education plays a role and not education in terms of the degrees and the academic qualification but education regarding the very phenomenon of domestic violence and this is not just applicable to the family members of uh, the survivors of abuse or the perpetrator of abuse it also determines you know how the very survivor and how the perpetrator would behave for instance i have met some perpetrators who have stopped being violent the moment they have recognized there is a law in our country which prohibits domestic violence without the awareness on the law they thought marriage means they have every right to behave the way they want with their spouse see now you see this is nothing to do with the place where they live this has got nothing to do with the caste it has got nothing to do with the socio economic status because i have seen cases cutting across all these three factors but if at all something is going to determine whether violence is going to continue or stop i feel it's greatly determined by the level of awareness i have had victims of domestic violence not even aware that what they are going through is violence the moment you empower them through information and that's where podcasts such as this and initiatives such as what both of you have undertaken matters because this is going to be a game changer rural urban caste socio economic status all of this keeping it aside education awareness on this is what spousal abuse is this is what needs to be done if at all you are experiencing it and if at all you are committing such a crime these are the consequences that awareness i feel not just to you know the family members but also to the very people who are directly engaged in either perpetrator behavior or somebody surviving it goes a long way is my understanding ma'am so considering that we have been talking about uh, the extended family and familial factors something that i'd also like to understand is within the indian scenario uh, when it comes to abuse from in-laws that's actually a pretty documented phenomenon like in fact even a study that was done in 2011 by raj and colleagues they reported that the prevalence of abuse from in-laws among pregnant women in india is as high as 26.3% So how do you think the experience of abuse actually varies depending on who the abuser is like in this case the spouse or the in-laws and how do these different forms of abuse actually um, you know correlate within the household See now 
all the six forms of uh, the spousal abuse that I had earlier talked, I feel all the six forms can also be committed by the in-laws and I have seen it. You know, when it comes to the physical abuse, sometimes let's say uh, there is uh, the physical violence that maybe the husband, you know, is being physically violent. Now, there have been times the in-laws have joined hands or they have taken turns to be physically abusive towards, you know, um, the daughter-in-law maybe. I've come across so many instances where the father-in-laws have been sexually abusive towards the daughter-in-law. Verbal, emotional abuse, the lesser said, you know, because it's, it's so rampant. It's so rampant. Financial abuse. Now, if at all you look at technological familiarity as an intergenerational issue and the in-laws by the very the definition maybe they are aged i have not seen much of technological you know the abuse that's been uh, carried out by the in-laws because they belong to a particular generation as of now but i don't see you know why this will not continue in days to come if we do not address this so like you asked you know how different is it and how does it occur all the six forms that have spoken as of now i have seen the five forms rampantly physical abuse sexual abuse verbal abuse economic uh, financial abuse emotional abuse these five forms of abuse i have seen in laws committing it sometimes with the support of uh, you know this you know the the son maybe yeah and when they all come together you know and that's when patriarchy raises its you know ugly head right you know the husband is not on the side the in-laws are not and here is one person imagine one versus so many one versus so many it's violence multiplied by as many number of people who are engaging it so if you are asking me is it any different i would say it's not any different you know it's not at all any different you know the spousal abuse and domestic violence that's carried out by the in-laws it's not different technological abuse i have not come across many cases where the in-laws have used technological uh, the platform but that's only because they're not familiar with it because you know the uh, in their generation it was not widely but then all the other forms of abuse i have seen in laws have also committed it so therefore when we are talking about spousal abuse we really need to be looking at what's the reaction of the in laws because are in laws passive witnesses or are they actively supporting the very perpetrator or are they the main the chief perpetrators we really need to be exploring that uh, ma'am so apart from now we've spoken about the six uh, different types of forms of abuse of spousal abuse but something that i'd like to know uh, right now is something that is very uh, predominantly discussed right dowry so according to the 2020 annual report by the national crime records bureau or ncrb there were 6966 recorded dowry deaths and 10366 cases registered under the dowry Pro- prohibition act across all states in india so can you just give us an overview of how dowry as a sociological phenomenon can actually contribute and precipitate spousal abuse and violence 
even though in our country dowry is prohibited but the practice of dowry giving and dowry taking is definitely prevalent and we see that around especially cases where i was mentioning to you earlier right my doctoral work is on women who burnt themselves you know one of the most common forms of torture that that's experienced in the context of dowry is burning you know the moment you go in any research you know the platform the moment you type dowry dowry deaths related deaths mostly are burns at least in the south indian context so dowry giving and dowry taking we need to be discussing dowry in both these context one there are families who like to give dowry when their daughter is getting married they give substantial amounts of money substantial amounts of uh, you know let's say property jewelry and all that there are also people who are giving dowry and then there are also people who are demanding dowry but the law says both dowry giving and dowry taking is something that's that's not all right it's illegal but then both dowry giving and dowry taking it's it's highly prevalent now think about it for many parents who give dowry in their mind what they are thinking is it's going to be for the safety of my daughter if at all uh, you know i give the money if i give jewelry if i give property that's going to be that's going to provide financial safety for the daughter yes it could be safety for the daughter as long as it remains with her it's going to provide safety financial safety and security for the daughter but then the problem comes when the money is taken away by the husband side of the family the property the name changes have happened and then the jewelry is all taken and then you see what 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 just happened the intention with which the dowry was given or people may choose to call it no it is just a gift and all that whatever be the name but then did the original purpose with which a father and a mother or the girl side of the family have given these properties money resources was the objective met when it was all taken away and when somebody has taken it all away what happens there is need for more if you can get us this much why don't you get us more so dowry when we are talking right many a times it happens before marriage before marriage there might be an understanding that this 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 is what we are demanding for our son because now your daughter is coming to our home there are so many families they will have meetings over dowry they they are maintaining okay this 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 will come it's not like what they agreed to take and to give they are satisfied with it dowry harassment begins when they say this is not enough this is not enough we need more we need more and then imagine the poverty you know the socio economic factor imagine a woman who knows that the father the mother don't have so much money but then there are demands from the husband side and it goes to the extent that will burn your daughter if you don't give uh, us money so when there have been cases where these brides have been burnt they have been burnt 
sometimes as a threat we are going to burn and give money so here there are people coming and giving money just so that their daughters don't die sometimes brides have been burnt as a way of eliminating her out of their life it's like okay we married this particular girl we brought her to this particular family now this family is not giving enough resources now what next you are not good enough we want another girl now in india marrying while the first wife is still alive it's not permitted at least in most you know uh, the communities and then what happens you might as well die you know so the the daughter in law or the wife is burnt it's killed so that and then dubbed it as you know it's an accidental death and then the son would be made to marry another girl and the same thing repeats so even though dowry dowry it's prohibited you just go to certain hospitals you know you look at you know you were uh, quoted a certain number where the law is there but then if that was the case why are there so many you know the cases and there are deaths related to dowry so therefore we need to be talking about dowry as both dowry giving and dowry taking and why does it happen to begin with dowry giving sometimes they volunteer to give as a way to safeguard the girl but where is that happening when all the things are taken away and uh, then dowry taking it's not dowry taking it's dowry demanding it's 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 torture nothing seems uh, sufficient it's nurtured by greed so we really need to be looking at both dowry giving the factors associated and dowry take it now sociologically there are certain families for them it's a matter of pride we won't send our daughter to another house without giving her this 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 and this and then for the other the marital you know the the boy side of the family it could also be like are if we do not demand that Uh, this much dowry does that mean our boy is not uh, qualified enough to demand a certain amount you see sociologically there are these cognitively distorted perceptions that unless there is a price that we quote that to marry your daughter our son deserves this then the perception is do others think that something is wrong with our son and they don't want that to be the perception and therefore they demand more and more it's like an msc degree this is the quotation you know a government job this is the quotation so we really need to also be looking at what are the underlying cognitive distortions that are uh, making all these you know dowry phenomena such a threat to life we really need to be exploring all the other factors that are contributing to dowry taking and dowry demand yeah definitely agree with you there ma'am and i really do hope that you know more research and dialogue happens about things like dowry and that eventually leads to change in these distorted cognitions that we hold as a society about things like dowry okay so shifting our conversation a little bit to the witnesses of uh, the spousal abuse that we've been talking about so far uh ma'am my question to you is about the short term and long term mental health impacts of you know frequent spousal abuse on the children who witness this what, can, what, what do you think about that now definitely whenever we are talking about any form of abuse we need to pay attention to three parties one the survivors 
second even the perpetrators now the third the witnesses now we've spoken about the mental health of the survivors and we really need to be talking about the mental health consequences on the witnesses and more often than not you know children become you know the witnesses to the spousal abuse that's happening between let's say you know the parents you know to uh, provide you know my response in a succinct manner sometimes you know what we need to pay attention to is are they just the witnesses of spousal abuse or is there also a complementing child abuse you know there are certain studies which are talking about when children are witnesses to spousal abuse but but still parents together or independently are providing you know the emotional safety net to the child the damage is not that severe however when this witness to the spousal abuse is also accompanied by child abuse then the mental health consequences are quite you know adverse what what am i meaning this is sometimes called dual abuse what is this dual abuse the first one is the child witnessing domestic violence itself secondly the child abuse for instance there might be a father who hits the mother you know but later is very very pampering to the son the moment the father recognizes that are my child saw me hitting the the mother maybe after hitting the mother uh, the child is now being taken for a walk and then whatever the emotional needs of the child are to an extent that's being met this is seen situation number 1 now let's take up situation number 2 where here is a father who is hitting the mother and then after hitting the mother comes back and also hits the child and after the dad has left the mother also hits the child to displace the anger now you see this is dual abuse one the child is a witness to the spousal abuse secondly the child is also experiencing child abuse so we we need to see that the chances of adverse mental health consequences is much higher in dual abuse that does not mean when a child is observant you know observing the the spousal abuse there is no mental health consequences but the chances of things getting worsened from the mental health point of view is any day higher with the dual abuse that's one now secondly we need to be also looking at what's the age of the child what's the gender of the child and what's the kind of the support the child has from other family members in the context of spousal abuse you know sometimes what happens let's say the child is 1 year old and the child is brought up in an environment where from day 1 the child has experienced violence it's violence to you and me but for that child it's a way of life times like that for all you know the mental health consequences are not that adverse as opposed to here is a child who had a very healthy regular you know the upbringing there was no violence till the age of 5 but at the age of 6 something went wrong between the parents and day in and day out the child is now witnessing now here the child is aware of and has experienced a certain lifestyle and now there is a sudden 
increase in the violence now this child in all likelihood might find it difficult to cope so therefore we really need to be looking at multiple factors such as how old is the child how old the child was when the abuse began between the parents and then what else is the supportive condition meaning i'm aware of some uh, the families where the moment because earlier your question was also about the extended families no the moment the couple you know mom being violent or dad being violent the moment the grandparents realize that there is going to be you know the violence they're taking the child away let's say they take the child outside they take uh, the child to a park or they are there in a separate room so the child is not witnessing you see this particular circumstance for all you know the mental health consequences will not be that adverse so therefore we really need to be looking at multiple factors such as the age the emotional maturity of the child the kind of emotional support the parents give after the child has witnessed violence and the the family the extended family support for the child also plays a very important role now but quickly talking about the kind of uh, the mental health concerns a child may develop a lot of research studies use the framework of internalizing mental health conditions and externalizing mental health conditions meaning internalizing means what uh, you know the symptoms are somehow inward directed for example depression anxiety or trauma all of these are inward related no but then there could also be the externalizing condition that a child may develop for instance aggression i'm sure uh, you know i'm one of your questions would also be what happens to a child who has witnessed somebody being violent will this child also become violent quite possible now if the child also is becoming aggressive and violent then you see what we call it it's an externalizing you know a situation it's an externalizing condition or what if the child in order to numb the pain of day in and day out witnessing parents being abusive towards each other ends up consuming substance so therefore all of these are possibilities now what happens to a child therefore is determined by what did the child observe when did the child observe the violence under what circumstances and also how is this child emotionally regulating and understanding this particular experience but the possibilities are internalizing conditions or externalizing conditions or quite possible that the child is resilient and the child is emotionally mature and decides i shall neither be a victim like my parents nor perpetrators like my parents you never know a lot of it is also dependent on the environment and the influence of the environment on the child this recognizing that parents are not the only factors in the environment instead they are the most important but not the only one there are teachers there are uh, you know peers there is a school there is the religious structures that the child is part of the ecosystem their support or the lack of it that's going to determine the mental health consequences of the child who has witnessed the spousal violence okay but i think it was you know good to know that 
the the thing that you brought up in the end that it's not just the parents who influence the child but there are also many other socialization elements such as the teachers peers extended family all of them who can still work to offset the impacts that spousal violence actually has on the children so i think that is a note of hope right there uh but moving on i also wanted to understand if the help seeking behavior of women who are undergoing spousal abuse varies if there are children involved in your experience what do you think ma'am you know this is a very interesting um, you know the question the help seeking behavior uh, is that influenced by children or certain conditions of you know the children i'll i'll just give you one example now this is not help seeking behavior i'll come to that but just one quick example about how the decisions that women make with respect to the violence the experience of violence and how it's related to uh, children one of uh, the burn survivors that um, you know i was interacting with and you know i i could not get the data for my research but then in that conversation one of the women survivors of burns she tells me i asked her you know in that on that particular day under those conditions why did you choose to burn you know what she said she said i burnt myself on that day to the situation is domestic violence because my son had uh, you know the summer holidays at the beginning of the summer holidays this lady burnt herself not at the end of the summer holidays because she tells me i choose to burn at the beginning of the summer holidays because he then gets two months to adjust without me and then the next academic year starts and he is much better if at all you know imagine i burn myself during the exam days how will he study you see these are the lived experiences of uh, women making their decisions to live making their decisions sometimes in this particular situation to die uh, of course you know she burned herself she survived and that's how she's speaking to me but you see these are the subjective motives of women when they are deciding what would they do with respect to the violence now when you're asking about help seeking behavior right i i feel from my experience women certainly take into consideration the children the age of the children and also the economic resources that are required in order to nurture the children if they are able to do it independently that's one thing but i have seen a lot of women not seeking help to get out of violent relationship under an assumption that if i get out of the violent you know the relationship that i am in what would ha- along with my child what would happen to my child's education in certain uh, examples i can tell that a mother i have seen this multiple times mothers choosing to leave uh, the violent marriages that they are in after children graduates after the child has got a job that's why sometimes you might have seen and people often wonder that you lived with your husband for so long and in your middle age you left him 
that's how colloquially people are speaking but why did a woman choose to end the toxic relationship a violent relationship during the middle age not because of anything but now the children are independent children can stand up on their feet so my understanding is one the educational level of the child is something that Uh, many women tend to keep in their mind while deciding about uh, you know the fate of their marriage now secondly at times it's also about the children and their own understanding of what's happening between uh, the parents a lot of times the mothers who tend to speak to the children about their experiences of violence who feel assured that my child understands what i'm going through they tend to seek help than those women who don't speak about what they're going through uh, to their children instead assume that if i leave their father my child will blame me so this too is another uh, the variable that have seen uh, you know the happening but you know i'm also trying to recollect you know what is the gender of the child got to do with each other in a couple of examples you know in counseling i've heard several times women saying i have a girl child i have a girl child now i don't want my girl child's marriage to get affected because her mother is a divorcee but i don't see this line of thought when the lady has a son so i think uh, children's education children age what's the kind of conversation and the relationship the mother has with the child and also you know like in uh, you know the last point that i made that too matters that too matters so uh, children are definitely one of the most important factors that we need to explore when it comes to the women's help seeking uh, the behavior in the context of violence thanks so much for that answer ma'am i think it was really supplemented with a lot of like real life cases and experiences and i think throughout this episode that's really been extremely helpful uh something that i'd like to bring back is also through uh the introduction as well right the first question you had mentioned how um uh, you had given us examples of s- uh, certain kinds of abuse that were specific through the pandemic of uh, neglect medi- uh, ne- medical neglect and things like that so i'd like to bring forth something else related to the pandemic in this question so uh, there has been a well documented increase right in the cases of domestic violence during the covid-19 pandemic so even in india that's been the case a paper by uh, maji and colleagues that was uh, written in 2021 reported that uh, there has been a major increase in domestic violence cases through the uh, period of the pandemic as compared to previous years so um, what factors do you think have contributed to this particular trend ma'am that's a very important issue that we need to be discussing because we are still in the middle of you know the pandemic you know the pandemic is not over so these are questions that we really need to be dialoguing further and even more deeply but two things come to my mind one is displacement displacement of frustration may be caused because of the financial constraints during the pandemic the many families experienced financial constraints many families lost jobs the very fact that we were 
cut off from the rest of the world and our world became our homes that in itself for many was a source of uh, the frustration and many people were dependent on alcohol and other substances and when they could not have an access to that that too caused you know frustration so in a lot of situations you know those families where there was no spousal abuse suddenly there was a spousal abuse for all you know because of all these frustrations getting displaced now what is displacement we all understand displacement is a defense mechanism right let's say somebody who is stronger than you has troubled you you can't show your aggression on that person instead you take it out on somebody who you think is weaker during pandemic my understanding is that who do we express our aggression to covid virus covid virus is the threat that's the dominating factor but we cannot displace our anger on the very source of that aggression no covid virus has caused frustration in us but where do we show our aggression there and therefore what did most people do they took their frustration all out on the spouses on the children a classic case of displacement i feel this is certainly one of the most the major reasons for a sudden increase all frustration because of anything that it is earlier you went out you uh, you know talk to your friends and now cut off so displacing it all on the spouse and the children that could be one of the reasons the second reason could also be and i i believe this is certainly um, one of the most important reasons why the reporting increased see for many they experienced violence and then let's say here was a woman who experienced violence and she went to work that means she did get 8 to 9 hours to cope with the violence and then she went back home violence but then morning there was a breathing period there was a breathing space that got created in the form of the fact that we had another place to go to work but during pandemic what happened you worked from home you suffered at home and you could not go out anywhere and therefore the cumulative impact of not having that breathing space no that in itself might have uh, encouraged women to not be able to tolerate violence and report it i'm not sure whether violence yes i mean when i say of course violence has increased but the extent to which people were coping for all the wrong reasons with violence nobody we need to put an end to violence no but then earlier because of they were going out and working there was a breathing a breathing space whereas uh, the pandemic cut that and when that happened many reported it because they were unable to cope up with the recurrence of it the repeated nature of it i feel these two reasons one actual increase in the violence the second one along with the increase in violence i also feel the reporting of the violence increased because many times i have met women who would say ah he hits me he scolds me but when i go to work i forget everything and i come back 
and then i'm looking forward to the work so here what happened was they were experiencing violence but they did not make up their mind to report but when they did not have any other way they they might have you know the reported and for all the right reasons they have reported and uh, uh, and pandemic therefore another this was called a shadow pandemic right one pandemic was of the virus the shadow pandemic was of the violence you know the violence and we need to be talking about this and here is where you know we need to empower the community to learn certain emotional regulation skills so that the lack of skills don't result in violence we really be need to looking at the shadow pandemic which is of violence yes ma'am definitely and uh, i think we've discussed a lot of things and a lot of themes related to spousal abuse and i think we've really highlighted how important it is that we have more conversations like this and make more people aware of what spousal abuse is and why it is so important uh but bringing our conversation to a close um uh, what do you think are the steps that we can take to equip women to better cope with the effects of spousal abuse now this question because you're telling it's a closing remark let me put it across in as succinct a manner as you know the possible because how do we empower women now this certainly requires you know an elaborate dialogue but i'm going to use an acronym and this acronym is something that guides all the work that we do at mukta foundation and uh, mukta foundation is committed to primary prevention of you know abuse and violence but the same framework is equally uh, important when somebody has already become you know victim survivors of violence and what do they do how do we empower i'm going to use this acronym of smile at our foundation mukta foundation we use this acronym what does it stand for look at this s m i l e s stands for safety skills now when i say safety skills what does that mean let's say a woman is in a domestically violent or there is an experience of spousal violence what are the immediate safety skills i've met women who have left their home have left their uh, marital home due to spousal violence but they did not take their marks cards with them now no company would give you you know work without seeing your marks card you see one of the fundamental steps is financial independence right life must move on we need money if we have education good but we need proofs of that qualification see when i say safety skills these little little things when you are moving out can you make a preparation to take all the important documents and move out if you are planning to move out can you save a little bit more money and then move out and these are just examples but we need to empower them with safety skills safety skills is also about where will you go are you connected with certain shelter homes are you connected with lawyers are you connected with ngos safety skills should empower them to protect themselves in the face of violence and then we need to look at m m stands for mental health literacy when somebody is a survivor of spousal violence research indicates the mental health consequences are adverse 
there is going to be a negative impact so we really need to be looking at the mental health of the person be it in the form of uh, the group therapy be it in the form of individual sessions be it in the form of empowering uh, you know the survivor with certain skills but mental health needs to be looked into i s m i l e i stands for interpersonal skills one is mental health but the other one is in order to prevent that this person does not get into repeated circumstances like this i have met women who you know they they were married they were in an abusive relationship once again they got into a relationship that person also was abusive please don't mistake that i'm blaming the person no instead if they were empowered with certain interpersonal skills such as assertiveness such as conflict management skills or decision making skills for all you know repetition of being in similar circumstances or repetition of being in similar circumstances for longer duration of time you know ends so interpersonal skills is we need to have life skills training on fundamental interpersonal skills so that i do not become a victim of violence nor do i become a perpetrator of violence yeah so s m i l l l stands for legal literacy a lot of times empowerment comes when we are aware of what is what does the law say regarding my situation what's the course of action that's necessary yeah so access to legal resources access to legal awareness goes a long way so legal literacy is an absolute must and e e is ecological perspective ecological perspective means we need to be looking at the multicultural the context within which this particular lady this woman is going to be empowered you know for all you know in like many of your questions were you know so beautiful you asked about urban setting rural setting a lot of times let's say somebody is part of an urban setting and the neighbor is also going through similar thing there is no taboo there but in a place where nobody has stood against stood up and said that i'm uh, being abused and i'm going to take a stance now we need to also empower the women to deal with the larger community and that's what we mean by ecological perspective see changing the world one person at a time is easier than saying let the whole world change may happen may not happen but here is a woman who's taken a stance and empowerment can only happen in the context of her you know life in that community so we need to also be looking at ecological perspective so how do we empower you know our belief our conviction is that let's use smile framework yeah smile framework is let's empower the women with safety skills mental health literacy uh, interpersonal skills legal literacy and an ecological perspective of her circumstances so this in a nutshell would be would be my recommendation to all of you who are working with survivors of um, spousal abuse may all these components be taken care may all these components be taken care and it goes a long way in empowering the person not just for tomorrow but for a lifetime definitely ma'am i think that was as comprehensive 
effective as it gets and the framework that you mentioned it really highlighted a lot of actionable steps that we can take to equip women to better cope with uh, spousal abuse and to be better prepared to cope with spousal abuse as well but uh, being a student of psychology i'm also really curious to know what your take is about uh, my other question which is about the ideal treatment approach in psychotherapy to help uh, survivors of spousal abuse like what psychotherapeutic modality do you think is most appropriate and ideal to help uh, survivors you know this is a very controversial you know question because each therapy has its own ways of uh, addressing the issue but if you ask me and this is my personal perspective i would certainly be looking at any strength based approach to counseling and psychotherapy now sometimes i use eclectic approach uh, but if at all you ask me what would be two of my you know picks especially when it comes to working with survivors of spousal abuse or any form of violence i'll first go to narrative therapy yeah why narrative therapy it's because one narrative therapy looks at all human experiences as being political that means uh, you know the larger dominant structures in the world are influencing each one of our lives and the best part about narrative therapy is they look at each story of violence as also a story of resistance and response i'm going to repeat this once again because this is the core of narrative therapy and this is exactly what makes it strength focused approach what did i say each story of violence is not of victimhood yeah nobody is a passive victim each story of violence is a story of response and resistance what does that mean see imagine if i ask what happened to you violence happened to me the way we are talking is as if this person is a passive victim of circumstances and violence no but narrative therapy would be so much more interested in yes this happened but how did you respond if you have come till this point to tell your tale that means you are not a passive victim instead you are an active survivor because you have resisted violence because otherwise you would have been killed right we've resisted it and you've responded and you've responded whatever be it you've responded with an you know utmost sense that you were doing the very best for yourself in that moment can we use the same skills values knowledge awareness and attitude to also thrive so narrative therapy i mean it's it's one of my personal uh, you know the favorites and uh, narrative therapy is empowering because it will not look at people as passive victims you know imagine if um, because of uh, the violence you've developed fever they wouldn't look at it as a traumatic response they would look at it as your bodily wisdom because your body is telling something your body is telling that wake up stand up for yourself so in narrative therapy anything that you say anything your body is experiencing it's wisdom 
it's a response and i personally think narrative therapy it's very very empowering because it's a strength uh, focused approach now the other thing that i often use is also sfbt solution focused brief therapy now why do i use it because solution focused brief therapy is extremely strength focused it is not looking at you being a victim instead they ask exception question they ask scaling question they ask miracle question throughout the encouragement is to visualize the future the focus is not on the past the focus is on the future the focus is on the future so it's it is strength based so usually i use a combination of narrative therapy and uh, solution focused brief therapy because what connects these two is both these are strength focused it's not trying to correct something that's wrong instead they are looking at what's already right because we are living and breathing beings right so something is right even in the worst of circumstances so they look at what is right and they want to build on it so therefore uh, you know i would strongly recommend the listeners and both of you to read up and uh, you know implement sfbt and narrative therapy and you know see for yourself how empowering it is for you the therapist as well as to the survivor of spousal abuse Okay ma'am thank you for that answer i will definitely be going back and reading up more about how these approaches can be uh, applied when uh, providing psychotherapy to abuse survivors uh, but bringing our conversation to a close my final question to you today is about um, about the general public the audience who's listening to this what are some overt noticeable signs and symptoms of spousal abuse that that we all can pick up and if we do pick these signs and some uh, symptoms up what actions do we need to take so can you tell us a little bit about that ma'am thank you so much for this question because ultimately bystanders right bystanders and witnesses and that's the larger community who's a witness to any form of violence and therefore we certainly have a role to play yeah so now what are the warning signs that somebody could be in an abusive uh, relationship see now sometimes it could result in the form of puffy eyes sometimes it could uh, come up in the form of uh, bruises on the body or sometimes it can also be an excessive makeup you know an attempt to conceal bruise marks or sudden changes in behavior imagine if you are in a workplace and your colleague is generally very cheerful and suddenly you notice that uh, the last uh, two weeks he or she is not coming during the coffee breaks and they are not their usual self see what i would suggest is abuse or no abuse the moment you come across a warning sign that shows that something is wrong with the person we need to use that as an opportunity to initiate a dialogue yeah so because sometimes you no know, the physical violence it can have noticeable marks on the body but the rest of the other five forms you no know, it results in low mood it results in irritation it can manifest itself in the form of anger aggression for all you know somebody who is so angry at their violent spouse might be displacing that anger at the workplace or anywhere 
so any change in the behavior that concerns you what you could do let me provide a framework i would strongly say remember this i call this vcare it's an acronym that i have come up with so that it's easy to remember v care what does that mean w is warning signs now when i say warning signs bruises physical but anything else right it's really about observing and noticing is something wrong and then taking it forward from there anything that you feel it's it's the person is disturbed right puffy eyes to not telling good morning to you not coming for coffees or whatever be it w is watch for warning signs e v care e stands for evaluate when is the right time to approach them imagine in the middle of the meeting you can't tell let's say 10 people are there and you should not be like you know ashwini you have a puffy eyes do you want to tell me the person will not be okay because there are so many people so evaluate when is the right time to dialogue v care c stands for connect how will you connect imagine i'm going to take up my own name and let's say somebody notices that you know i have puffy eyes and there is a cut um how to connect connection can happen by saying let's say uh, i'll take up my name and somebody can say you know ashwini the last uh, two weeks have been noticing that uh, you know there is uh, repeated cuts yeah i was a bit concerned i am a bit concerned and i wanted to check with you if you wish to tell anything to me and if i could be of help you see so how do you connect connect by letting the other person know what did you observe what did you observe tell them and tell them that you are concerned and then tell them that if you wish you can let me know how i can support you if there is some concern and let's say if the person says i don't want to talk to you always connect and then leave an open invitation it could be like you know ashwini you're telling me that you don't want to talk to me today i understand it might be difficult but please remember during our tea breaks if you're interested to share with me what you're going through and trust me i'm going to be there so always leave people with an open invitation to come back and connect with you okay c is connect e is acknowledge now when you are if at all that person wants to talk to you please listen no advices acknowledgement is the whole of counseling skills and all counseling skills begins with listen empathize tell them what did you understand no advices no questions no uh, you know normalizations trivializations none of those acknowledge their subjective world okay r care right r is refer please know you're not counselor you're not a mental health professional you're not a social worker who knows to take the case forward we are not lawyers so instead the best thing that you could do is refer them to these resources maybe ngos maybe counselors lawyers refer them and e is engage engage means after the referrals once check no how did it go a lot of people think let's say if i refer the other person can think ah you referred me because you want to wash your hands off my case no we referred because we understand our limitations 
yeah so when you engage i could somebody could say no ashwini the other day had given you that psychiatrist's number was that helpful would you require any other support now, this is a way that you make the other person feel understood feel supported so my recommendation and my strong suggestion is follow we care method because the world needs people to care for each other and survivors of spousal abuse or any form of abuse it's difficult to talk about violence we know it right it's difficult to talk about any problems that each of us are going through and when the other person has been kind enough to care watch out for warning signs evaluate connect acknowledge refer engage we certainly feel valued we certainly feel unconditional so we care is a framework that i wish to uh, encourage you all to remember and importantly implement it whenever you feel somebody is in need of it all right uh I think with that we come to the end of our very very wonderful discussion about spousal abuse today uh, with you ma'am once again thank you so so much for taking your time out to be on the narratives we learned a lot from our discussion and i hope our listeners do too thank you so much for having me over and uh, more power to both of you and all the listeners um, who are following the the podcast Okay so in today's research snapshot I'm going to be talking about a paper that's titled Associations of Power Relations Wife Beating Attitudes and Controlling Behavior of Husband with Domestic Violence Against Women in India Insights from the National Family Health Survey 4 This paper was authored by Dinabandhu Mondal and Pintu Paul and published in the journal Violence Against Women in the year 2021 The objective of the study is was to examine the impact of unequal power relations, wife-beating attitudes, and the controlling behavior of husbands on women's experiences of domestic violence. So let's jump right into the study. So this study used data from the most recent administration of the National Family Health Survey, that's NFHS four, that was conducted in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen. It is a nationally representative large scale sample survey that was carried out in all the states and union territories of India and it provides information at the district level of all 640 districts in the country. So this survey actually gives us updated evidence of key population indicators, health and nutrition status, as well as a range of other health related issues including maternal and child health, fertility, mortality, reproductive health and other such uh, variables. So this study used a two-stage stratified sampling procedure, and uh, it interviewed a total of six lakh ninety-nine thousand six eighty-six women aged fifteen to forty-nine, with a response rate of ninety-seven percent. So I'm sure you can tell that this is a very, very large-scale study and um, very big data that we're talking about in the study. So um, out of all of these responses, eighty-three thousand. thousand 397 women were selected for the domestic violence module and uh, valid information about intimate partner violence was available for 66000 uh, women so getting straight to the results the results of the study showed that in india a substantial proportion of women were physically emotionally 
and or sexually abused by their current partner with 31% of women reporting at least one form of intimate partner violence in 2015-2016. So this study highlighted how rigid unequal gender norms and attitudes in society may contribute to domestic violence against women. The study also stressed the influence of socioeconomic and demographic factors on spousal violence. So getting into the uh, details of how the socioeconomic and demographic factors influence spousal violence, the first finding was that the decision-making autonomy of women is associated with a lower likelihood of spousal violence. So the more ability that a woman has to make decisions for herself, the less likely it is that she will be subjected to spousal violence. And this is actually in line with the framework of feminist theory, which indicates that domestic violence actually stems from patriarchy and more specifically the lack of autonomy and the weak bargaining power of women. So these unequal power relations are actually what prevent women from participating in the decision making of the household. And this automatically restricts their freedom and movement and their access to economic resources. And all of this actually contributes to a lower self-efficacy among women. And all of these factors come together to expose them to the risk of domestic violence. So, I mean, this is actually a very interesting framework to actually look at the etiology of uh, spousal violence. But moving on to the second finding, which was that women who justified wife beating by their husbands are more vulnerable to spousal abuse. This finding implies that a male-dominated society actually permits men, I mean, gives a free pass to men to abuse their wives within the marital relationship. And women's justification of this behavior is just a reflection of how even they accept these unequal gender norms in a patriarchal society. So a significant proportion of women, regardless of their socioeconomic status, accept the differential power relations that are based on gender and do admit that men have the right to teach or even beat them if they fail to fulfill their gender specific duties, such as taking care of the household and cooking food for children and taking care of children and so on. And women also justify the husband's wife beating as a way of rationalizing the treatment that's given to them. As in this is one by justifying it, they're somehow trying to make sense of what is actually happening to them. The study also reported that the controlling behavior of the husband was strongly correlated with an elevated likelihood of domestic violence. And the study also demonstrated that child marriage was associated with a higher risk of intimate partner violence. And the physical and mental immaturity of these younger brides makes them more uh, prone to being powerless and also having less autonomy. And uh, this lack of autonomy is actually made most significant with the large age gap between the wife and the husband. And right at the top, I'd spoken about how uh, the lack of autonomy is related to several other factors in a constellation that makes women more uh, prone to the risk of domestic violence, right? So this feeds into that as well. And in addition to everything that I mentioned, other risk factors that contribute to spousal violence include rural backgrounds, low educational attainment of the husband, alcohol consumption, and uh, poverty. So anyway, this was uh, uh, quite a few, you know, insightful findings from 
uh, that that the authors of this paper sort of uh, picked up from the National Family Health Survey uh, four. So yeah, Shweta, what did you take away from this study? First of all, I'm really glad that once again we have uh, referred to like an Indian study, right? I think the Indian context becomes all the more important when we're talking about um, things like the social, fa- social cultural factors or social demographic factors, right? And that said, I think this study really, really threw light on so many different factors. I think um, that makes this so very holistic and integrated. So um, yeah, I think it brings light uh, so many significant factors and also the implicit attitudes right that can contribute towards domestic violence um, and I think this highlights how domestic violence can only be understood when it's looked at as embedded within the socio-cultural context right and um, okay so I think like a significant finding that you had uh, like mentioned right something that really interested me is how a really large proportion of women actually view domestic violence as acceptable, right? Like this really just goes to show how implicitly accepted domestic violence is and the extent to which work needs to be done to eradicate it. And um, I think this also really suggests that priority should be given to girls' education and female autonomy to actually reduce and prevent the risk of domestic violence. In fact, efforts I think should also be made to, you know, spread awareness and build self-efficacy among girls to actually fight these rigid patriarchal norms of society. So I think while it really threw light on the larger systems or the systemic issues that actually contribute towards it, I think my biggest takeaway would be um, when it comes to how to deal with these concerns, right? And how to actually make sure that women and young girls are empowered enough to stand against the systemic issues that might be perpetuating domestic violence as a phenomenon because especially considering how we discussed that I think the a lot of the difference comes into how we're discussing the implicit attitudes right I think these are things that uh, would probably not be entirely visible uh, when we are talking about the context of domestic violence. So I think it really just goes to show how deep-rooted the issue of domestic violence is and how we all as a community actually contribute towards it, right? So yeah, I think it was a really, really interesting study and I, I'm just really glad that uh, we got to discuss this within our social-cultural context. Okay, so I think that was a very, very interesting episode, right? Much longer than our normal episodes, but I think it was definitely more than worth it because as psychology students itself, like we got so much insight into the topic and I'm pretty sure our audience uh, shares that opinion too. I think one of my biggest key takeaways has been from the beginning of our conversation with Ashwini ma'am, right? Like we discussed about the forms of abuse and I think at least as um, individuals who have studied uh, like studied this uh, before i think that's a very common theme that we come across when it comes to the six different types of forms of abuse but i really love how she brought to light the how the definition of these forms of abuse are really uh, subject to the context right like we discussed how within the covid 19 pandemic Uh, Even things like medical neglect uh, on part of one of the spouses does qualify as physical abuse. And I think it's very important to constantly like, um, you know, monitor how we define such key terms and key phenomena within uh, psychology because um, like we've mentioned throughout the entire podcast, even in this case of in this episode, the sociocultural context or 
the uh, particular uh, yeah the context that we are situated within becomes so important when we talk about concepts like this so yeah i think that was my biggest takeaway what about you preeti what do you take away from this episode yeah i definitely agree with what you were saying and i very much resonate with that uh, but in addition i think one of my honestly from this episode there were so many uh, things to take away but one thing uh, would be the fact that uh the people in the children's environment the children was who are witnesses of spousal abuse uh the other people in their environment such as their grandparents their peers their teachers or anybody else in their environment for that matter can actually you know work to offset the negative impacts of being witnesses to spousal abuse for those children and i think that pain a hopeful picture in terms of potential for breaking the cycle of violence in uh, households that are subjected to spousal abuse so i think that was uh, one of the very important takeaways from today's episode for me yeah i actually like agree a lot because i think like when we talk about uh, things like domestic violence it's very easy in fact considering the grim nature of the topic to get uh, Uh, that it paints a pretty like difficult picture right so yeah i'm pretty glad that you brought that up because uh, it helps us look at the other side of things too yeah definitely and with that we wrap up this episode of the narratives please do take note that all the research studies and other sources cited in today's episode including the research study that was discussed in today's research snapshot can be found in the show notes below while we hit the books to prep for the next episode of the narratives You can make sure to stay tuned to all things Matra by following us on our social media. The links to which you'll find in the show notes below. We'll see you next time. The Narratives is brought to you by Matra, an initiative launched under the Fortis Young Mental Health Advocacy Program by Fortis Mental Health.